here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. All right. Welcome, everyone. Um, this is the Medicare for All podcast, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. I am Benjamin Day. And I'm Stephanie Nakajima. And on the podcast last episode, uh, we talked about how the uh, public approval rating of the pharmaceutical industry has skyrocketed since COVID. It's jumped twofold uh, since the start of the pandemic and, you know, the arrival of the COVID-19 vaccines, which has dragged us back into the workplace kicking and screaming. Thank you, Pfizer. And that has been, you know, kind of attributed in the public's mind to pharmaceutical, the work of pharmaceutical companies doing research and development on this vaccine. And, you know, we talked a little bit last week or last episode generally about the misconceptions around Big Pharma's contribution to drug R&D. But today what we're going to do is narrow in on sort of the COVID vaccine and how this particular vaccine was developed, as well as where the global struggle for vaccine equity is today. <laughs> ben, you're muted. I, I think that's my first mute fail in a whole year on the podcast. So thank you for catching me. So we were just one <laughs> that we're not little podcasters. Yeah. So. So we warning our <laughs> listeners now. Well, we fortunately we have uh, we're joined by two amazing guests who will not mute fail the way I just did. I'm sure um, <laughs> we, we're joined by David Mitchell, and David is a cancer patient and a founder of Patients for Affordable Drugs, which is a nonprofit organization that advocates lowering prescription drug prices. He also has 40 years of experience working on healthcare and public health policy as a communications specialist. And he retired in 2016 to focus his full energy and attention on, you know, helping bring about policy change to lower drug costs. So David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And we are also jo joined by Andrew Goldstein. Uh, Andrew is a public hospital primary care doctor, an activist and an organizer. I love those three things together. <laughs> um, he is an assistant professor of medicine at NYU uh, with a background in global health, community health worker programs, and clinical evidence informatics, which I don't know what that means, but it sounds impressive. In recent years, Andrew has shifted his non-clinical work toward political action and currently organizes with the Free the Vaccine and People's Vaccine campaigns with a focus on direct actions. Love it. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, Ron. So uh, why don't we start with David? Uh, David, can you tell us a bit about your story and also why you decided to found Patients for Affordable Drugs? Yes, I uh, am a patient and I have an incurable blood cancer. It's incurable, but it's treatable for some unknown period of time with very expensive drugs. Right now, my oncologist had me on a four-drug combination, and this four-drug combination carries a list price of more than $900,000 a year. It's, wow. But it's keeping me alive. My out-of-pocket for just one of those drugs, this little bottle that actually has 21 capsules, I order it every 28 days because I take it 21 days on, seven days off, mm -hmm. uh, carries a list price of almost $21,000. My out-of-pocket for that drug last year was $18,000. Wow. Uh, now, I care a lot. Of, I'm grateful for the drugs, and, and I care a great deal about innovation. You know, pharma says if we do anything to lower drug prices, we'll kill innovation. It's not true. I care deeply about it. The reason I'm taking four drugs is because I failed one at a time. 
on, uh, on them. And eventually I'll fail on this combination. Unfortunately, that's how people die of multiple myeloma. They run out of drugs. So I need them to invent new drugs. It's a matter of life or death for me. And we want to make sure that we restore balance in our system so that we get the innovation we need, but at prices we can't afford. Yeah. And that's such a compelling story. And also, I mean, it really shows how just the incentive of innovation, you know, that's not always the right reason to <laughs> accept really high drug prices, even when it is really important. So David, the first question that I have is for you, who exactly paid to develop the COVID-19 vaccines? Uh, taxpayers, <laughs> um, primarily. The history of the vaccines that we are now getting is that the federal government invested pre-pandemic $17 billion in vaccine technology at a time when drug companies were not investing because it was high risk, low return. And so NIH, uh, something called BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research Development, I'm forgetting what the A stands for. Uh, and another one in the Defense Department called DARPA. The Defense Department was more attuned to the idea that we were going to have a pandemic. And they contributed to the $17 billion that was invested pre-pandemic so that when the, when the coronavirus hit, there were vaccine technologies ready to be tested by the companies. And they could move lickety-split. Why else did they move fast? Well, because taxpayers invested another $20 billion dollars. Only this time we invested in the clinical trials, creating production capability. For example, Moderna had none. It had never produced a drug. So we stood up its production capability and we de-risked the enterprise for them by saying, we're going to buy your vaccine when you bring it to market. Uh, and so taxpayers are the reason we got these so fast. We saved ourselves. Now, the drug companies did their jobs. You know, they have the ability to run the fact, well, some of them did, some of them didn't, but they produced drugs and they did their jobs, but they were able to do it as quickly as they did because of the investment by government. And by the way, Pfizer likes to say, someone mentioned Pfizer. Thank you, Pfizer. Someone likes to say, I'm sorry, Pfizer likes to say it didn't take government money. That's not exactly true because its partner, BioNTech, took $446 billion from the, I'm sorry, $446 million from the German government. And then, of course, Pfizer is being paid a very handsome price to produce the vaccine and is turning a great profit. Right. So it was just German taxpayers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. It's a public venture to fund something like, as you say, that's high risk and, and low reward. Well, what we do with drug development in the United States is we socialize the risk and we privatize the profit. Yeah. So it's just wrong. And that was my kind of my next question was, you know, we hand over all this money from taxpayers to invest in the development of these vaccines, are there and are there any strings attached or do they do companies really just simply collect all the profits? In the United States of America, NIH invests, in fact, the NIH, NIH investment contributed to every single one of the new drugs approved by the FDA between 2010 and 2019. Every one. NIH will confirm this for you. And this is the National Institutes of Health, yeah. Yes. Yep. which uh, has a budget this year of about 42 or $43 billion. It's the single largest medical research agency in the world. And so 
NIH invests in the basic science that lays the foundation for what ultimately grow to be new drugs. And then when it's ready for commercialization, a, a new drug, they turn the IP over to the drug companies with no strings attached, period. The drug companies can set any prices they want. We just saw that happen this week with the new Alzheimer's drug from Biogen that set a price at $56,000. Why? Because it can. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it doesn't work either, right? <laughs> well, we won't go into the fact that there's absolutely no proof that it's effective. Right. <laughs> but in the case of the vaccines, we did negotiate. In fact, we, we helped them produce the whole thing. And then we said, okay, now we're going to pay this price or that price. And we bargained with them, which actually shows you that it is possible to get the innovation that is saving us all and getting us back to our offices and get it at prices that are lower than would be if we just let the drug companies dictate prices. Why do I know that's true? Because the companies are already talking about raising their prices. Pfizer has a price per dose right now of 1950 in the United States of America. It told its shareholders on a shareholder call, on an investor call a couple of months ago, that it was looking to raise the price of a dose from 1950 to somewhere between 150 and 175 dollars. And a lot of us are going to need a third uh, top up, if you will. Uh, Andrew would know what that's called, a booster. Uh, and so if we just let them and we don't negotiate pretty soon, instead of being having these uh, vaccines, which are being made available free to all people in America, because the government bought all the vaccine with our money, instead of them being available at prices that, that are free at the moment, suddenly they'll be treated like every other drug in the system. The drug companies will set the price. And at their first opportunity, they're going to jack it way up. I'm starting to think that instead of big pharma seeing a huge surge in public opinion support, maybe government should have seen a, a yeah. huge surge in public opinion support. So I want to I want to shift gears a little bit to Andrew because just from what we've heard now about the power that these pharmaceutical companies get, the funding they receive from the public, but then they're sort of allowed to choose their own, who they're selling to, how much they're going to sell for. What does this mean for the the global setting? So I mean, when we look at India right now. India only has a, a vac vaccination rate of about 3% of the population, while the U.S. is at, you know, 42% and is on a much faster track. So, Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what is standing in the way of developing countries in particular being able to purchase enough vaccines to, you know, fully vaccinate their populations? Well, uh, I think the most important thing to remember is that we are in a pandemic. And by definition, that means it is a global crisis. It is not a local epidemic. It's something that's affecting all of humanity at the same time. And so much of our response, whether it was public health steps early or now vaccine deployment has been nation by nation by nation. And so what you're seeing is nations, again, mainly rich nations have been gobbling up all of the doses that have been produced. They've done this through contracts that they have with the pharmaceutical industry. But the other thing is that we should remember that there's false scarcity in the first place. So why do we only have the number of doses that we have is because the rich countries that are gobbling up all the doses are also preventing us from maximally producing doses. And so this is what's driving vaccine apartheid. Um, one, creating false scarcity in the first place. And then two, the little doses that we have, just buying them all up and only letting rich people have them first. And that's leading to countries where, you know, India's 3% actually looks great. You know, some countries are at like 0.2%. And imagine, you know, within countries who's accessing those, um, you know, those rare doses. So 
it's a real travesty. And, and it, you know, people talk about how, you know, U.S. imperialism or colonialism, they sort of never went away. But this is actually how it manifests. It looks like we're protecting our pharmaceutical industry and other nations don't have access to vaccines at all. And it's a it's a thing that affects us within within our own country. Also, you know, when you look at the same forces that are driving inequitable distribution across national boundaries, they're also driving inequities within countries. And what about the the patent rights? You know, I remember there was a, a fierce sort of global fight over access to HIV/AIDS drugs. For example, in some countries, were were literally just kind of producing their own generics in defiance of of these pharmaceutical patents. What is the debate looking like? You know, within the World Trade Organization, for example, over these patent rights, which you know are basically preventing countries from saving their own populations by by producing some of these vaccines on their own. Yeah, sadly, we've been here before. We know that when a life-saving tool exists in a moment of crisis, that often there's vast inequities that happen. And the HIV crisis was a very similar one. And so, you know, activists around the world, countries in the global south, they saw the writing on the wall. And in the fall of last year, the WTO, the World Trade Organization, already had a call from South Africa and India for what's called a TRIPS waiver. So this is a patent waiver. This is a emergency public health authority of an international institution to say, this is a crisis and we're not just gonna let one company or a set of companies hold patents um, if that's gonna keep people from life-saving med- medicines, from crisis-ending medicines. And so that's on the table now for you know maybe nine months or so. And unfortunately, it's just starting to get a lot more traction in the last two or three months. Uh, but this would waive the patents uh, on both the vaccines and then also all of the technologies that are part of the production process aside from the vaccine itself, because a lot of that information is on patent. Um, unfortunately, this is not the complete picture. It's actually really complex and wonky. There's also a whole bunch of trade secret kind of technology that is not necessarily patented um, and that companies are very unwilling to share. And so that they're, you know, the TRIPS waiver alone is a necessary but insufficient thing. And unfortunately, what the pharmaceutical industry is saying is, well, it won't fix everything um, because they're focused on the inadequate part of it, but it is still a necessary step. And so, um, you know, we have to do a complete set of actions in order to do what's, you know, freeing the vaccine to ensure that basically everyone has uh, access to it as soon as possible. Yeah, and we just had this uh, this G7 group of seven summit, or I guess it's still maybe ongoing, where you know a bunch of wealthy countries pledged to donate a certain number of doses, you know, up to a billion doses. Is that going to be enough? Uh, this sort of charity approach. Well, let's do the math. So, how many people are on Earth? It's about seven and a half billion people, and not all of them are in the vaccine eligible age. So, let's say it's around six billion people. And for the best vaccines we have, that's Pfizer and Moderna, they're two-dose vaccines. Again, David mentioned boosters might be necessary, um, especially as variants are on the rise, and we don't know that they're going to have full strength against two doses once. So that means we need at least 12 billion doses. So 12 billion doses, and people are putting out press releases when they donate 20 million doses, 20 million with an M. So we're orders of magnitude off. And, you know, this is why sort of the donation model is not going to be enough. Now, 1 billion sounds like a good amount. The problem is, one, they're already sort of undercutting that amount and promising a little bit less. And two, there's no timeline attached. 1 billion doses in a month is great. 1 billion doses in three years is terrible. And so what's our plan to get 10 billion doses or more in the next year is really the question that everyone needs to be asked all the time. Yeah, so like a charity of 20 million doses for a need of 12 billion is kind of like the 
let's improve subsidies for the ACA to address the 30 million Americans who don't have health insurance and the 60 million who have really bad insurance. Um, so definitely, definitely some corollaries there with the insurance side. And just one more question about this, because I'm so interested. So you talked about how, and this is something I've been hearing a lot, a criticism of, oh, but just lifting the the waiver on this intellectual property or the patent is, I mean, this is just not going to do it because there's all this infrastructure that, and like what you were saying, all this other technical technological know-how that, you know, companies in developing countries might not have in order to ramp up production. I guess my first question is, would it have mattered had the U.S. sort of led the way or indicated that it would be open to lifting the patent on on trips or lift, lifting the waiver on trips like months ago when this movement first started? Would that have made a difference or are there other things that do we just need to also rally around? Yeah, sorry. Um I think my internet cut out for a second, but basically I think the uh, long story short on it is every day, every week, every month matters because the pharmaceutical talking point around this is, well, scaling up production is very hard. And that's true. Actually, it is like a lot of uh, production facilities have never made vaccines like this before. Um, but that's not the question. The question is, how do we get all the places that could be producing the vaccine to do it as quickly as possible? And the lead time isn't something that should prevent us from doing it at all. It's a thing that we need to deal with. So sooner is better. Six months ago, nine months ago would have been the ideal time to be, you know, hitting the ground running with this. You know, if as soon as Pfizer had like a, a blip in the efficacy data that this was going to be a great vaccine, if we wanted philanthropic capitalism to work, they should have been begging rich countries to just say, here's $200 billion. We're going to share it universally and get production all the way up. Um, and so they've been dragging their feet at every step. And, and that's actually what's made it so we're in these, you know, constant contentious battles. But really, the, the moment to act was nine months ago, and it's still now, and it's until we actually do everything we can to maximize production. Ooh, it's a big ask. So coming back to David, uh, both David and Andrew, actually, uh, it seems like, obviously, the pharmaceutical industry has pretty strongholds on our governments. And I mean, not just a hold, but maybe is even dictating policy to our government. Um, and that has ramifications for both, you know, the U.S. ability to combat the virus now and in the future, and also the larger global health movement. So if we don't confront the pharmaceutical industry and start taking action on, on the price of our medications, um, David, what do you think is going to happen to the price of the COVID-19 vaccines a year or two from now? The companies have made clear, they've told us uh, out loud, that they intend to return to pricing that is uh, in a norm, more, more normal market. And Pfizer actually put a number on it, raising the price from 1950 a dose in the US to somewhere between 150 and $175 a dose. So we, we know what's going to happen. Johnson & Johnson made clear from the beginning that it would be setting a low price during the pandemic emergency, but it, that it would be raising the price afterwards. Drug companies charge as much as they can get away with for every drug they make. That's their model. And they're going to do the same thing with these vaccines. And in the end, we will pay for it. Why? Who do I mean by we? I mean patients, consumers, taxpayers, and the government uh, and employers. Why? 
because that's who pays for everything. And by the way, when I say employers, if an employer has to pay $150 for a dose of vaccine instead of 1950, where do you think that comes from? You get less money in your paycheck for sure, or you get higher out of pocket or you get higher premium sharing because in the end we're paying for everything. And we have to bring these companies under control right now they have the unilateral ability to dictate the prices of drugs. That's how our laws work. The drug industry has invested decades building a policy and legal framework that is designed to benefit them, not you and me. And we have to change those policies, which is what we work on at Patients for Affordable Drugs. Mm-hmm. And when you held up that bottle of pills, David, uh, my first thought was don't drop them. They're worth like hundreds of dollars each. Um, But my second thought was I'm pretty sure it doesn't cost the the pharmaceutical company that much to make those pills. They're probably close to nothing, right? The sister drug to this one is called Revlimid. This is called Pomelis. They're made by the same company. I took Revlimid for five and a half years. A lot of people with multiple myeloma take Revlimid. It costs less than a dollar a capsule to make Revlimid. It sells for $833 a capsule. Unbelievable. Revlimid is the second most expensive drug for Medicare to be given to 42,000 patients out of 46 million on Medicare Part D. A, A teeny tiny fraction because this drug is so wildly overpriced. And it's overpriced because a company has manipulated our system in order to keep competition off the market. And uh, we let them get away with it. We don't bargain. Every other country in the world, every other developed country for sure, bargains with the drug companies. We don't. And the result is we're paying almost four times what those countries pay for other brand name, or for the exact same brand name drugs. And that touches on something that I that's actually current right now in Congress. I mean, obviously, one of the reasons we don't negotiate drug prices in the United States is we don't have a Medicare for all system like most countries do, where you have a sort of the country negotiating prices for the whole population. But there is a debate right now in Congress about letting Medicare negotiate drug prices. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And, you know, can people have a uh, sort of get involved right now? To, and what difference would that make if Medicare was allowed to negotiate some of these drug prices? Well, as I say, we're paying almost four times what other countries pay because we don't. You can you can think about what we could do with that difference if we could reduce it. Could probably cover there, everyone else, right? <laughs> well, yes, there's enough money to do a lot of things that would help people get better health care. But there is a bill in Congress, it's called in the House, it's called HR three. It would let Medicare negotiate for lower prices for parts for all drugs. It would extend those lower prices to the private sector. It would put a cap on price increases annually at no more than the rate of inflation. It would lower the out-of-pocket maximum for Medicare beneficiaries like me that paid $18,000 a year for a single drug down to 2,000 max. And we really should go lower than that. And it would direct an amount of the savings to NIH to ensure new drug development, new innovation, new basic science that leads to innovation. So it's a very powerful, comprehensive reform of our drug pricing system. In the meantime, we believe that bill will pass the House. In the meantime, the Senate Finance Committee, under the leadership of Senator Ron Wyden, is working up a bill that will also include Medicare negotiation. We expect to see paper on that bill, whether it's a summary or a bill, in July. That will Neither of those bills will pick up one Republican vote. 
because the Republicans oppose Medicare negotiation. So we're gonna probably have to pass it under reconciliation, but that's doable and the president supports it. It's an uphill fight all the way because the pharmaceutical industry is probably one of, if not the most powerful lobby in the world. Why? Because it's a monopoly industry and monopolies by definition have unlimited resources because if they need more money for campaign contribution and lobbyists, they just raise prices and that's what they do to us. So we got a tough fight, but we got a shot at it this year. How can people take part? Come to patientsforaffordabledrugs.org. <laughs> uh, we don't, we, we, don't oh, we don't take money from anybody. Uh, we don't ask people for money. If they want to give us money, that's up to them. We don't ask people for money. They got enough problems paying for their drugs, but they can give us their stories and sign up to be a part of our community. And we'll put them to work in that way. Great. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, healthcare now, we, of course, support what HR3 is doing, largely because it is part of Medicare for All, actually, Medicare for All. The, the bill would actually also require negotiation and an out-of-pocket cap and all of that stuff. I mean, ideally, it would be that everything is free at the point of service, but that's where we're starting, and that's, that's eventually what a Medicare for All system would do. And so HR3 would be like just a real actual transitional or incremental step towards, towards Medicare for All. And, you know, as tough as it is in the U.S. Um, to fight for to fight back against drug companies and for patients here who are paying absurd $18,000 a year <laughs> for, for their drugs. I really I wonder and this is a question for Andrew, you know, what about developing countries? Right. So as we were just talking about, every other developed nation does negotiate for drugs in, in Denmark. You know, there's I think they have the same thing as every other country where they have like a indexed price list. And then on the patient side, I think there's an out of pocket max of like two hundred dollars. And if you have like any kind of complex health need or anything that that, that even that's waived. But um, yeah, about developing countries, do they get to negotiate and does it really make an impact in those countries? And I, I sort of have this impression that we're still operating on mostly a charity model for, for the global South. Yeah, well, I think it's really important for us to tell the full story here. And so the full story for me actually relates to back to when we were saying like, well, this was funded by German and US taxpayers for the vaccines. And, and why is that? It's because we have a very nation-driven, rich nation-driven approach to biomedical sciences. And the same goes for healthcare. And this is not because of some natural state of poverty just existing. Countries actually have been very, in a manufactured way, have been impoverished. These aren't poor countries, these are impoverished countries. So countries for decades have been given uh, national debt. And then rich countries have said to them, you know, as part of trade negotiations for you to actually be richer, you actually need to read biomedical sciences. So how are they gonna develop vaccines if we've sort of gutted their research industry? Same goes for healthcare. They have very diminished public healthcare systems because we have told them they, they have to. We've told them they have this to. This is like budgets. part of those like IMF loans and World Bank loans, exactly. the, these conditionalities, right? Yeah. And so this is forced austerity from rich countries onto poorer countries or again, impoverished countries, which keeps them impoverished. And that makes it so that there's very, very frail public health systems throughout the world, which is our fault, not the fault of just, oh, well, it's getting built up slower. It's It's been thrust on them. And that means that most of these countries have uh, a tiered system similar to the US actually. They might have a public system that's universal in name only, but it's of such low quality that a secondary private system exists. And that's often, you know, cash payment system, 
where people are paying full price, but these are very wealthy people in a very poor country are paying full price for medicines. And that's actually how a lot of doses for the vaccine are getting uh, implemented. The US actually is a, a more universalist approach to vaccine than it is for any of its other healthcare. We actually are giving all people in the US vaccines free at the point of care. And we're finally getting a taste of that. But then, you know, even if we donate lots of doses to other countries, those countries are, are selling them often at a very expensive price to their citizens. So there's, we're driving a lot of within country um, discrepancies also um, because of just this whole, you know, the way that we organize both the pharmaceutical industry, sell these countries and the austerity we've forced on them. So why don't we, why don't we wrap up by talking about how folks can get involved and take action on this? Um, David, you, you plugged your the, the website of the organization already. Is there anything else you want to say about how folks can get involved and what campaign work is like really urgent right now? Well, for us, we're the only national patient organization focused exclusively on policies to lower drug prices. And we are, the core of our work is collecting patient stories. There are 27,000 up on our website, training patients to be advocates. Patients in the last few weeks have testified in five states, and we've testified before uh, three different House committees in hearings uh, on HR3, this bill I mentioned that would allow Medicare to negotiate. That's the core of our work because in the absence of a legitimate, authentic patient voice, pharma puts fake front groups in uh, and uh, goes to Congress and says, oh my God, if you do this, we're not going to get the innovation we need. We don't care what it costs. You know, we just want the drugs because there's no cure for my disease. There's no treatment for my disease, etc." cetera. Uh, and so having people come uh, leave their story or give us their email, we, we will put them to work. We harness those voices uh, we have 340,000 people in our patient or in our ally community right now, uh, and uh, we harness them, and uh, they they send letters and make phone calls and uh, all of that. And it is our voices, and we are fortunate to have resources. We don't accept money from anybody who profits from the development or distribution of prescription drugs. Nobody. But we do have resources and we put those resources to work. They'll never match pharma's resources, but those voices and those stories have power and that's what we're gonna beat them with. So patientsforaffordabledrugs.org. <laughs> I'm completely unabashed. And you can also put it, we can put that in the show notes for all, all the listeners. We can, that will also be in the chat uh, when this is finished. And so Andrew, uh, I know you're also part of some some organizations that are working on the Global Vaccine Equity Project. Can you tell us a little bit about those organizations and um, how people can can support or get involved? Yeah, absolutely. And I just really appreciate David's sort of model of this is going to be people power driven. If we're going to win it, there's a lot of money and big power that's that's in play. But you know, at the end of the day, there are a lot of organizations that have been fighting for health justice for decades, and they saw the moment that we're in, and they've stepped up. And so I don't work for any of these organizations, so I'm, I'm plugging them because they're wonderful. So, you know, groups like Health Gap, ACT UP, People's Vaccine Alliance, which is uh, re related to Oxfam, uh, Partners in Health, MSF, which is Doctors for Borders, they have an access campaign. There's a group called Justice is Global, which I've been working with a lot, which is a part of People's Action. Uh, which does a lot of Medicare for All work, but Justice is Global is their progressive internationalist arm. They've definitely been doing a lot of uh, the direct action organizing that we've had around the country in the last few months. 
And I would recommend checking out any or all of these organizations and joining their action signup links, which many of them have. And I, I would just say um, this isn't, you know, personally, I, I think we need to see this as a moral issue. There's millions of lives that are at stake globally if we vaccinate inadequately or too slowly. But at the end of the day, it's also a, a very self-interested thing for a few reasons. So, you know, one, it's self-interested because it's related to all of the U.S. drug pricing issues that we face because it's the exact same bad guy doing the exact same things, but in different ways. And we just need to see the international system for what it's worth and realize that this is something where we have common cause and a shared bad guy. But it's also an issue because there's variants that are on the rise. You know, the Delta variants variant is very scary. If you're not vaccinated, um, it's probably should be more scary than what we were experiencing a few months ago. Um, but then the other thing is like, even if you're vaccinated, even if you're in a country with a high vaccine rate, you should be very scared of an ongoing pandemic selfishly because there's a projected $9 trillion loss to humanity's economy. And what that means is a global depression or recession because we you know, forced a pandemic to linger in other countries. That's gonna hurt us. We're already seeing some inflationary signs. And so for a million reasons, public health, personal, moral, economic, we all need to do our part. And this is only really gonna happen if ordinary people start taking initiative and joining up with causes, but also just taking their own initiative. So I hope everyone will will sort of raise uh, attention to this because it's very easy for pharma to say, this is a non-issue or we're doing the best that we can and no one can do better. Or actually, you know, these are just activists who hate us. And, and the reality is no, we, like, we really just need to end this pandemic for everyone as quickly as possible. So everyone needs to do their part. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, David and Andrew. I mean, you know, healthcare now, we're usually mostly focused on domestic health reform, trying to win a Medicare for all system for the US. But this pandemic really, I think, forces us to take a global perspective as well. We really are all in this together, literally and figuratively. And I want to just close by thanking our podcast team. We have an amazing volunteer podcast team that makes this whole thing happen. Our podcast manager is Sarah Sang. Our writers for this episode were Lindsay Baish and Jerry Katz. And our audio editor is Sandra Felicia. So thank you so so much everyone this was really eye-opening and compelling we will be back thank you thanks everyone